economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. My name is Peter Jacobson. I'm the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. With us today, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the director and founder of the Gortney Institute, and also Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. Okay, so our last podcast, we talked about meat, and it came to mind the form of media deception that goes on where they, uh, this happened with Trump all the time, of course, which was expected maybe in different ways for different reasons, where, you know, he said this, or there'll be some sort of inferral that, and it might get denied later with a, a reprint or something. But here we have Biden in office, and they're trying to, this article was related, related to climate change and meat, and they basically inferred that Biden had said something tying it to supporting getting rid of meat, but then they somewhat with a sleight of hand just implied that and moved on with their agenda. And so we thought that today it might be a good podcast to talk about media and the sleights of hand that they do, the magicians that they are in trying to have us move a certain direction where we don't have as much of the facts and news of stories, everybody's more of an opinion artist. And I think that's caused a lot of problems in in society. So what do you think of that sleight of hand stuff? Well, so specifically, people didn't just imply that he said that he wanted to cut meat, right? There are articles whose headlines are, Biden wants to cut your meat to four pounds a a year, right? And it turns out that 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 was never actually the case. He never actually said that. And so if and when these things get corrected, they just put a little correction on there. And I think what you're saying is like, look, this lie, uh, you know, these lies go around the world just as the saying goes, you know, four times before the truth has a chance to put on its pants or whatever. (laughs) I haven't heard that. That the corrections are made, you know, in the shadows so that if somebody later wants to go and see if they did correct the story, they did, but they get a bunch of mileage out of things that don't actually, aren't actually the case. Yeah, and I, I think it's just not biblical um, in the sense of, uh, you know, we can go to the Ten Commandments and see how many of those are violated by the media every day, but lying and cheating and maybe stealing other people's, you know, individual words, so to speak, in, in the case of Biden with a, with a headline that was just point blank wrong. And I think we all know that they certainly do that intentionally. And so the, the principle of subsidiarity says that we should look more local for the people that we want to help and think about their concerns. And so I wonder how that plays a role when we think of the national media. And and it seems like most of this deceptive stuff, oh gosh, we could bring federalism, I think, into this argument too, that we have too much power going to the, the federal government. And then that leads to incentives for media and opinion makers to want to sway public opinion on the national side. But that goes down our whole federalism rabbit hole that we've spent some time on before. Yeah, I think you're right, Russ, that the problem tends to be with the corporate press, right? The the national press. And so I've never picked up like an issue of the Ottawa Herald and thought that they were targeting someone in the community with false accusations or something like that. I'm sure that happens occasionally. 
But the sensationalism, the manufacturing of different news stories or different topics that we see in the news, you know, weeks on end, months on end, I think that does occur at a, a national level. And I think you're right that a big issue is that in our culture, we are very interested in engaging in a national conversation, even though that might not be the most fruitful conversation to engage in. It might be better for us to ignore these people, ignore the, the corporate press, because the news stories that actually impact us or that we could have an effect on tend to be more local. Yeah, so the, and the principle of subsidiarity is from the Catholic Church originally, the doctrine of looking that we shouldn't look to the federal government to solve a problem that could be solved locally. And also ties in nicely to Hayek's thoughts on knowledge that we have more information locally. And so we shouldn't look, we should look to the lowest level of government possible to address problems that we face, whether that's even within the church or within our community or our families for that matter. So that's just the principle that we do is always look to the to keep things as close as possible. Yeah. Maybe we should also spell out just why we think that the corporate press is, and I don't want to put in, you know, any words into your guys' mouth. So I'll say it, you know, from my perspective, a dumpster fire, right? <laughs> um, I think Michael Malice had a quote that I always liked, which is, you know, the war will be won when the corporate press is viewed the same way as a cigarette company. <laughs> and yeah. It's very tempting to look at the ways in which the current corporate press is misrepresenting reality often and all the time and seemingly on purpose and say, where, when did this start? Uh, you know, how could things have gotten this bad? And to think that things are uniquely bad right now. And I think it's important to look back and realize that the corporate press has always been doing this and they've been doing it for, you know, a very long time. And not only have they been doing it for a long time, but the people who have been doing it pay no price for when they are provably getting things wrong. Yeah. So Glenn Greenwald, who is one of my favorite journalists and started The Intercept, which he was recently booted out of, he had this recent article about, uh, partially about this, where he is saying that, look, this new hire for MSNBC, she was a you know, really pushing the Russia collusion very, very hard, saying that, you know, the thing, the, the tape was real, which was obviously uh, in, falsified in the dossier. And she, for pushing this, this narrative, she has been rewarded with promotion after promotion and going from more prestigious pr publication to another prestigious publication. And then he goes, but if you look back, look at Jeffrey Goldberg, who wrote the uh, canonical article in the New Yorker in May 2002 about how Saddam Hussein had formed an alliance with Al-Qaeda. This was the you know, one of the most cited articles for the drumbeat for the Iraq war. It was full of falsehoods, completely discredited after the fact. And what happened to Jeffrey Goldberg? He got a sweet new gig editing the, the Atlantic. The owner of the Atlantic apparently had to shower Goldberg's children with horses in order to get him to even accept the gig. So it's not just that they get it wrong. And it's not just that they get it wrong a lot. It's that they're rewarded for getting it wrong. And is that a cultural problem on our part that we don't reward? Or is it institutional in terms of how we absorb information with the internet that they're basically what you said was the, the cost of them putting out bad information is not high enough and probably close to zero in some cases. So they have nothing but gain to 
get flashy headlines. But what I'm saying is that it seems like we don't care as consumers. We're not like, you know, penalizing them or, or whatever from the culture side. I, I think there might be a, a cultural cultural issue worth discussing. And I, I think that's sort of what we were getting into with the talk about subsidiarity. But I do want to, before we get there, acknowledge the institutional problem that's going on. And so a lot of people are quick to point this out as like the result of capitalism, that under capitalism, you're going to have these journalistic agencies, which are going to chase clicks. And, you know, this is going to lead to sensationalism and everything's, you know, going bad. And maybe there's an incentive to even make things worse so that way you can get better headlines. You know, you've probably heard all these arguments before. I will point out, I think a, a really telling ruling that came down against Donald Trump was when he tried to ban, who, who was the anchor, I believe CNN, who he tried to ban from the White House press conference meetings. Is it Acosta? Yeah, Acosta. He tried to ban Acosta from the press meetings. Mm. And the the courts ruled that you can't do this. This is a, basically a violation of the right to a, a free press. But when this ruling came down, I, I really had to scratch my head and think to myself, well, there's a lot of journalistic agencies out there who a lot of people listen to. In fact, you know, indiv- independent creators on like websites like YouTube who actually get way more listens than probably Acosta does, who don't have a press pass. And so is this a violation of their First Amendment rights as well? And what about, you know, these smaller companies who would get a lot bigger if you allowed them to have the press pass too? And when you start to think about things in that light, you realize actually a lot of modern journalism involves access to political insiders. This is the formal mechanism, but there's also, you know, how many stories of the news, which, you know, some of them were probably totally made up, but probably some of them were true, but, or, you know, had truth, but were a little bit manufactured. How many stories over Trump the last year was our insider at X Bureau has told us this information? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is knowledge that comes through the political process. This isn't knowledge that exists. Like it's not under, like under capitalism, you can buy bureaucrats and government agencies, right? That That's not a feature of the market. That's a feature of having bureaucrats to buy off in the first place. And so there, there's this weird thing going on where we act like the free press means here's all of your privileges to political insiders. But really what the free press means is being able to print apart from either privileges or punishments from politicians. I think these big corporate media outlets like CNN, like Fox News, you know, some of these bigger, you know, online publications, The Atlantic, the only reason they can, they can exist today with the, basically the gar- the garbage, the dumpster fire, as Justin put it, that they have is, I think, because they have more access to these political channels than other people do. To me, that's the same as giving them a handout. So imagine that, Peter, goes to the lack of competition, uh, ultimately, which, you know, it kind of reminds me of breakfast cereal, believe it or not. So, if you walk down the breakfast cereal aisle, it looks like there's a lot of competition, but in reality, all of that breakfast cereal is being made by a couple companies. And so I kind of wonder if it's not similar here that we might have the perception that there's lots of competition in in the press, but you're saying there's certain gatekeepers, especially when you look at deep into the senators and, and the president, the press, the corporate press pass, that's not dished out to any old person who wants to get in on those meetings. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And there's a certain extent to where even these competitors will put their quotes on there will defend each other. Yeah. I mean, you know, everyone was up in arms about Jim Acosta losing his press pass, but no one is up in arms about the fact that like YouTuber Philip DeFranco who gets half a million views a day doesn't have a press pass. It's like, why would you want your competitor to have the press pass? Maybe it's something about freedom of the press and, you know, you care about the principle, but if you care about the principle, why not defend these bigger creators who are independent of your networks? 
I think it's because they're not actually really competing with each other. Yeah. They recognize that this is sort of a collusion that they all have going. So would you go and, so far? We have a press cartel. Yeah, I, I think that that's a, a reasonable thing to say, or at least like a press oligopoly. Yeah. If we want to, you know, yeah. not assign motives or something, whatever baggage comes with the word cartel. I, I think that that's, right. that's reasonable. And you can even see this. I mean, you know, who's supposed to be competitors? It's like Fox News versus CNN. Well, even within Fox News, you have like one or two journalists who really no one likes, but then the other ones people basically do. And so like uh, Tucker Carlson, you know, no one likes, but there's a lot of people at Fox News who don't like him either. And so you can even see these elements in the, the quote unquote conservative uh, media elements. You have people who are basically part of this, this corporate establishment and, you know, are outraged at the idea that CNN doesn't have more access than a, a local journalist or something like that. And they also, just to build on that, not only are they kind of colluding like that, they, it's the case that the stories that they report on are each other. They have made, you know, uh, MSNBC will report on what Tucker, Tucker Carlson has said, and he will report on what uh, Rachel Maddow has said, right? So it's like they, they become mutually reinforcing. Interesting. All right. Well, that looks like a good spot for a break. Um, I forgot to mention at the top of this that we, and we'll celebrate this a few different ways, but we just broke 10,000 downloads for our podcast. So thank you listeners for that. In fact, the last 10 months, 5,000 of those came in the last 10 months. So we've uh, seen some nice growth as well. So we're excited about that and we'll be back in just a bit. By 2030, the Gordney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to students' experience. Society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. The Gordney Institute at Ottawa University is the blessed place in the Midwest for students in, interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing. Faith and economics in action. If you know someone who's looking for a college like that, contact Peter or Russ or Justin today. Please visit our website at 123povertysucks.org. There you will find our events, blog, and our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysucks or on Facebook at Gortney Institute for updates on our activities and research. All right, so we need to pick up where we left off some uh, interesting revelations. I had never really thought about the press cartel or the press limited uh, good old boys club, uh, boys and girls club, that there might be a exclusive group. And that's why at least contributes to part of the dumpster fire, as Justin said. So Justin, what, what do you want to add on from here? So I think there's a tendency when I talk about this for me to seem like I am pessimistic or, or that this is really, you know, things are heading in a bad direction. And I actually don't think that's the case. I think that what in the past, if you look at like 1950 to 80, you had those three cable news channels and they controlled mm -hmm. the national dialogue. The New York Times controlled the narrative. And I think what you are seeing right now is the narrative is slipping out of control from the elites. And that is why uh, you see all these clickbaity headlines. They need you to click and uh, they know that you can get your news somewhere else. I mean, I, I don't have cable. I, I can't remember the last time I watched cable news but I'm pretty well informed. And the way you can be well informed is, you know, you can subscribe to authors that you like on Substack. 
You can get the news from any number of websites that you want. You, you can cater the news to, you know, however you particularly want to find it. And so what I think you are seeing when you see all of this clickbaity and, you know, obviously like rage inducing and intentionally rage inducing headlines, mm -hmm. you are not seeing a machine that has power, that has actual power exercising it. If you want to look at that, look at the way things happened in, you know, the thirties when Walter Durante was running the Moscow desk and completely misinforming everybody who read the New York times about what was going on in Russia. I mean, it would be very hard to do that today. And right now you see people at these legacy media companies complaining that, you know, on Substack people are having unmoderated conversations and, or sorry, yeah, on Clubhouse, people are having unmoderated conversations and Substack's a problem because the, there's no editors to control what writers are feeding uh, the people that they like. This is a legacy media that is an animal that is losing control of what it thought it had a monopoly over. Yeah, I think the other wrinkle that came to mind as you said that, though, is that it creates the silos because of us being able to pick the news we want to hear and our confirmation bias is that's all we want to hear. And then our, our perception of reality can get distorted because of the incentives from Facebook on just keeping your eyeballs on the screen like we've talked about in previous times and that when the bad news is called out, it only gets called out in the siloed areas. And so the other people might not hear that call out of wrongdoing, or it might be deep in the shadows like we were talking about earlier. And so I think that's contributing to this frictions that we have socially too, because of that. And I'm not sure that that's just, I think a little bit different element to the dumpster fire. I think that's correct. But what my argument is, is that's better than yeah. what came before, okay. which is that right. it wasn't being called out at all. Yeah. Does that make sense? Well, I'm hoping that it's a dynamic process that you're saying we'll get to a better place. We're just at the dumpster fire right now. The, the, uh, and, and maybe stuff like Urbit or some other things uh, might be able to contribute to the solution. Yeah, well, that, this is, I, I think, a good comparison we can make to keep up the collusion. What ha what's happening now is similar to what happens with a lot of unions. And so when unions are very unsuccessful, they lobby hard to push things like occupational licensing. So there's lots of laws in this country that say that you have to have hundreds of hours of training before you can become a hairstylist. And justifications are things like, oh, it's too dangerous to do. And you know, obviously that's ridiculous. Now, some, some organizations have more of a claim to that, like you know, electricians. The electricians say, well, it's dangerous to do amateur electric work. But of course, I doubt that the union's concern is actually that people's houses will burn down, but it's probably more of their concerns that you know, amateur electrician work is going to undercut them. I think journalism is doing the same thing right now. And I think Justin did a good job of pointing this out, that journalism, this focus on worries about fake news and the harmful fake news that's spreading around and people doing their own research. I mean, this is corporate media saying essentially people are too dumb to screen facts for themselves. They need, we, we need to appeal to authority instead and we are the authority, you know, th thank you for your business, that sort of thing. And in order to stop this, well, you know, they, they can't exactly lobby for uh, outright regulation, though there are some of that. So instead they lobby things like the social media companies. It's like, well, 
you know, if we can't force a law that prevents people from doing independent journalism, maybe we can convince Facebook to not allow you to share independent journalism articles or mm-hmm. fact check them all into oblivion with with opinions, these sorts of things. I, I think these are signs of what Justin was saying is it's signs of a sort of a collusion that's desperately trying to cling to the old industry. And now what they're saying is well, oftentimes what unions say is, this alternative is dangerous and you can't let this dangerous thing exist. And through all these different means, we need to curb the danger. I don't think free thought is a danger. I think that people becoming better researchers and becoming you know, less reliant on other people's credentials is probably a good thing. Not that it's a bad thing to seek out someone's credentials, but you know, we shouldn't rely on someone to tell us what the truth is. I, I think that this is a, a positive movement too. And so I, I see this all as a, a good direction. Yeah. Mantor Olson comes to mind with uh, his sclerosis of collective action, where it eventually might start off good. It starts off voluntary. Hey, let's work together. And then as the organization grows, it starts to look more and more inward at protecting and these reach outs because it is crumbling could be a problem. And so I think from the Gortney Institute standpoint, collective action is fine until you start using the government as an instrument for protection and you're able to garner support from politicians through regulations or otherwise, if otherwise the use of persuasion, let's call it or whatever, as long as they're following the law, it's either going to work or it's not going to work. And maybe they'll rebuild themselves, redefine themselves, whatever. But as soon as we, they're able to garner support through the government, that's where I think I draw the line. And unfortunately that's where it usually goes. I definitely draw a line there too, Russ. And and I think that we are showing sort of a trend that it's it's not working. There are attempts to rebrand that you were mentioning. And I I think the reason for that is this shouldn't be a surprise to us. It makes sense, and economics would teach you this, it makes sense that when it's very hard to come by information or knowledge, that it makes sense for someone to specialize in gaining information and knowledge. They get better at it. They have more access to it. You don't have to waste as much time. Information and knowledge are becoming cheaper. And so it's not surprising to me that people no longer have to go to some specialist in knowing facts in order to learn the facts. They can look for the facts themselves and they can do their own research and and their own investigating. Mm -hmm. And so I I agree with you totally. I draw the line at laws. I also think that we need to, uh, we've had this conversation, sort of an ongoing conversation. I also think that there is a time to discuss the, the, the cultural change and the cultural issue, because I, I do think there is something to that. I think that it would be nice, if, for example, if we lived in a culture where consumers said, no, Facebook, we can determine for ourselves if this article is fake news or not. Mm-hmm. We, we can look at the facts ourselves and make an educated opinion. We don't need you to screen for us uh, what's going on. And so even these like softer, non-legal things that companies are trying to do, I, I would prefer to live in a culture where people are, are less interested in appeals to authority, basically. I'd also like to live in a culture where people are less interested in outrage. And that's, I think, something yeah. that, um, that can't be fixed on a level other than the cultural level. This idea that, you know, we reward outrage. Yeah, road rage is supported. Like, we always hated that, but now we've got raging all over the internet. <laughs> and uh, what we should do is try to, you know, get each other outraged. Um, and that, you know, yeah. outrage merits attention. Yeah, yeah it kind of reminds me of hackers that just do it to cause problems. And that's what you've got incentives for people to poke and provoke because that'll give them more followers or whatever. So that 
is definitely out there, but keeping it open seems to be the best way out. I also wanted to bring up with Facebook, I played for Peter the other day, an advertisement. I was listening to a Wall Street Journal podcast and the opening ad is from Facebook saying, the internet regulations have not changed for a number of years and Facebook supports working with the government, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but working on new regulations to make you safe for the internet. What, what took me away is that this is Facebook paying for an ad to help people give the perception that it's okay for Facebook to work with the government and get cozy when really they're just trying to protect their own industry and they'll come up with regulations that have such a high bar that will keep competitors out that won't be able to compete. Yeah, I think like Facebook, these companies know that they're in a bind because the reason they got popular was in part because they permitted the sharing of information between people on, you know, at a with a very high degree of freedom. And now the mob is calling for them to crack down and restrict that that sharing. And that's coming both from you know, the corporate press and from a large portion of, the, of society, since these two parts of the society seem to hate each other. <laughs> and I think they know that if they actually go through with cracking down on these people as a corporate policy, they will lose market share to whoever can come in and provide that service. So what they want is a regulation that requires them to do the thing and will also prevent anybody else from coming in and displacing them out of the market. That is, I think, one of the biggest mistakes that a lot of conservatives who say, well, we need to regulate these companies since they're uh, acting in a, in a unfair manner mm -hmm. make is that, okay, well, if we regulate them, we are definitely going to be, uh, to make it, we're going to um, make them permanent and make them um, invincible. Yeah, this is the the concept of Russ and I talked about yesterday, regulatory capture, where the put you the organizations you're trying to regulate, because they have the knowledge that you need to regulate them, you bring them to the table, and then they never leave the table, the chair is under them, and you can't pull it out very easily. And so and this also gets the idea of and just to, to continually harp on this, you know, we have a, a big problem, I think, with in our circles of people who are generally supportive of free markets that they think that we have a free market in things like journalism or that we have a free market in things like social media. And so, you know, it's okay that, you know, Facebook is kicking people off the platform or, you know, de uh, censoring certain news agencies because this is just a private company making a decision. But in fact, it isn't. And the, the, this is ultimately the problem is we have regulation all the way down. The corporate press is built on political favors, insider knowledge, things like that. Facebook has, you know, lawyers who deal with technological regulations that other people don't have access to. When these competing social media networks arise, oftentimes they'll get, you know, they'll have financing pulled out from under them. And you know, things like, you know, access to bank accounts or credit cards or payment systems or advertisers. Well, do we think that we have a free market in banking? I certainly don't. I wouldn't think that any Bernie Sanders supporters would say there's a free market in banking either. And so it, it's not so simple to say this is a company that's private on paper and therefore this is the free market. We don't know what the free market company arrangement would look like because we don't have one. And so that's not, by the way, an argument for regulation for the reason Justin just said. But it is something to point out that every, every decision that they make isn't necessarily good in the results of free markets because this is a private company. 
In fact, it would look, the world would look a lot different if we had uh, no banking regulations, no tech regulations, no insider knowledge from journalism. I don't believe there would be a CNN. I don't believe that there would be at least as large of an organization called Facebook. I think there would be a lot more competition. Yeah. Uh, so. so would it be safe to say then that, because this is kind of what I think, and I'm wondering if you think it too, that I, I think that the conservative argument about regulating these companies they get at least a large part of the problem right, but that their solution would be, would make the problem worse. Yep. And uh, the converse of that is I think a lot of libertarians understand that the solution is problematic, but they ignore the fact that the conservatives are correct about the problem. Yeah. And I always have a, a problem with like the way we narrate that, that if we had a free market, so then it seems like we're pointing to the solution. I think you'll agree with this, Peter, but maybe not that we should just that that's the let's call it utopia or whatever of that no regulations or all of a sudden we go to that and i, I think back to hayek with the road to serfdom that and coase mentioned this too that maybe it would be more productive to look at where we are today and can we make any incremental changes that head down the road towards the freer market rather than the centrally planned option and i I think if we can frame it that way, hopefully we'll get more people to buy into the virtues of it that we're not just going to, oh, we can't just get rid of all regulations. It, you know, it'd be chaos and whatever, you know, and that's yeah. kind of a hard pill to swallow. So I think the slower approach is, is, is a better way with changes that are made as we move through time. Yeah, I think the two categories of changes are political and cultural. And so like we said, I think uh, moving away from a culture of outrage to a culture of local news and local concern because by the way, it's really hard to be outraged at your local mayor if you walk into their office and have a conversation with them. Because <laughs> right. most of the times it's hard to be outrageous to someone's face or even someone who you know in real life. This is, listeners should listen to the Urbit podcast. One of the problems that Urbit solves is creating that identity as opposed to the internet where you just have a bunch of Twitter brigaders with like weird pictures and yeah. names that are anonymous. anonymous. Yeah. And so that that's the cultural side of the, the fix, not being so focused on outrage, being more local, subsidiarity, the principle that we talked about at the beginning. And then the political fixes. Not, I agree with Russ. You know, the targets. We, there are things that we can do politically, and that looks like removing some FCC regulations, removing some banking regulations, getting rid of the special privileges to to banks, especially large banks, and moving re removing regulations from the smaller local state banks that really cripple them and hurt them a lot. Yeah. The, these are something that would greatly improve all industries yeah. uh, because it would allow for more competition. There's less chance that people are going to be deplatformed. Uh, you know, have their payment methods taken away. Yeah. And so targeting those higher level regulations really are a good political fix and a good incremental change too. Yeah, I'll add one little thing, just listeners, you might, depending on your age, know this already, but there was at one point within the last 20, 30 years, I think 12,000 banks and we're down to about 6,000 now. So the banking industry at one point was 16,000, I think if you go back to the wow. Great Depression. So the shrinking of that industry is exactly what Peter just laid out. Regulations went up. Small banks couldn't compete with mm -hmm. big banks. All of a sudden, Wells Fargo was like, oh, I can afford an attorney to do that yep. and this and that and, and follow the regulations. And so you have this industry that continues to shrink and we lose some of the value of those local banks that we that we once enjoyed. My dad worked in a community bank all when I was growing up and you could tell by his mood the week that bank regulators were in. <laughs> Again, this is something that corporations can totally outsource to law firms. 
but you know, local banks have to take their most valuable workers and have yeah. them spend it like multiple weeks dealing with these regulatory hoops that they could be productively growing their bank. Right. And so this is definitely a big problem. Yeah, there's not fewer banks because there's less money. Right. No, that's <laughs> exactly, exactly right. Yeah, exactly. Certainly more money. All right. Well, that looks like a good place to wrap for today. I'd like to thank you all for listening to the Gorton Institute's production here, Faith of Economics at Ottawa University. Again, we are celebrating 10,000 downloads of our show that we've been doing for, what episode are we on, Peter? Do you remember? uh, I'd have to pull it up. We're, I think, in the hundreds. We're in the hundreds Uh, somehow. At least 5,000 of those views have come in the last about 10 months. Yeah, which is really fun. So we're really growing quickly. Yeah, so the growth has been good, and we appreciate you all listening, and anything you can do to help some other people find our podcast uh, would be great. Other than that, be fruitful multiply. Thanks.